0: I had some ground personnel come up to me and ask me to sign a PAX manifest, so a passenger manifest. And usually the loadmasters do that. And I I found it kind of odd that they were asking me, I was like, hey, like, what's the difference between this and what we usually do? They said, oh, this is a passenger manifest for 24 orphans. Um, we need you as the aircraft commander. You are now signing as their legal guardian. So that was that was gut punch at that point. Wow. I don't yeah. know. And all of a sudden, I have 24 immediately.
1: Escalated um, <laughs> quickly.
0: That, that very much did. Um, it was an honor. It, it was absolutely a no-brainer. They're like, hey, will you take them? Absolutely.
1: Tower, to We're waiting for a left. We're clear for takeoff. Seats high. Altura zero eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Viper check. Two. I'm sorry. I'm On. my rap at 354. So we have on. What's up hope everyone is doing well and thanks for tuning in the podcast whether you're watching on YouTube or you're listening you notice the background slightly different I'm over in Hong Kong but I wanted to get this out this is a two-part series and it's tied to the withdrawal of Afghanistan I have Voodoo and AP joining for separate episodes talking about their roles in the evacuation of Afghanistan and what they saw and what it was like. We're gonna do a live session at least with AP. Hopefully we can get Voodoo involved and maybe a few other players. That's gonna be towards the end of August. Those dates are still being set. If you're interested in joining in on that, the best way to stay in touch and in tune is to subscribe to the podcast newsletter, which is linked down below. I promise I won't spam you because I just don't have that much time, but that is the best way to stay connected and get the info out once we decide when and where we're gonna do this live stream. Again, it should be pretty interesting. The link's down there. I always ask, if you like this content, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, like it, leave a rating, leave a comment, that helps the podcast out. It also applies for YouTube viewers, and you can saying that, but it does make a big difference. So if you're liking it, take the six to nine seconds, jump over there, and leave me a rating review. I read them all. So with that being said, let's jump into the podcast. Voodoo, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Um... I know we said we wouldn't even mention or people wouldn't even know, but we've had some technical difficulties getting around it. You know, who would have thought been this challenging, but, uh, the world of podcasting. (laughs) Thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm happy to have you on here. Quite an accomplished background, C-17 pilot, weapons instructor. Um, you have a unique perspective on a lot of different things. We're going to talk about your career kind of towards the end and, Reverse order, what I wanted to talk about today was specifically, because this kind of pairs with the episode that I did with AP, and coming up on the two-year anniversary of the withdrawal of Afghanistan, there's obviously a few things to talk about with that, but you had your hand in it, you were there and seeing firsthand, and I want to jump into Afghanistan and talk about that and some of your experiences from how it kind of came about you realizing uh, I'm going to be flying downrange and we're going to have to go go do some work to what it was like day in and day out for those few weeks in August of 2021. So can we jump into where where did you first kind of gain a little bit of awareness that hey this might be going down and what it might might entail?
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Rand, for having me on the show. Um, big fan. So this is awesome to be able to do this opportunity with you. Starting back about two years ago, let's see, I was a fresh graduate of the weapons school just a year out. So doing my first three years of a tier one time. And then I was actually, first time I heard about it was I was on a intel and tactics TDY. So a trip out to Scott Air Force Base, which is Air Mobility Command. I was talking to some of the intel professionals out there and they were asking me if I heard a little bit of the rumblings of what's going on uh, in Afghanistan. And I knew that we were closing down the bases, but they pulled me back into the vault and they showed me some of the products that some of my good friends were working on to actually reopen possibly some of the bases to be able to do the NEO, so the non-combatant evacuation, out of there. And it was wild because you... You grow up in the C-17 community and you see all these giants planning these exercises and actual real world things. And all of a sudden, it's you and your friends that you see at the bottom of these sheets with their name as the contacts. So that was a really cool thing to kind of gut check us, if nothing else. I went back to my wing and I asked my wing commander if he knew anything of the planning efforts. And he actually hadn't at that point because they were still kind of keeping it quiet in the planning cell. So we were talking in the vault about it. I let him know what I knew. And then, no kidding, about a week and a half later, I get a text that essentially said things are going down. And I knew what it meant, but somebody getting that (laughs) text probably wouldn't have uh, from their friends. And so at that point, I was on leave in California for a wedding and – Called up my ops officer, my DO, and told him, hey, sir, I'm ready to fly. Whatever you need, whenever we launch, let me know. I can get up there in about two hours. These are the flights I can jump on. And he set me up that he still allowed me to go to the wedding that day, which I was very thankful for. And no kidding, I hopped on a plane right after that, flew back to Washington State. I was stationed right then at McCord, which is up in Seattle area. And got on a plane the following morning. I, no kidding, landed in SeaTac, hit crew rest, and got on a jet that following morning for our first Bravo launches, which are like launches to, no kidding, take off and go do the mission. So there's four jets that took off that first Bravo launch. And I was the first jet out of that train. So it was really kind of a surreal moment, but at the same time, really awesome.
1: Yeah, it's wild. I want to back up a little bit because something I found interesting uh, that I didn't really think about, but talking to AP, and you probably can attest to that. I mean, really anyone who's been in the military for the last 20 years, like especially, we're used to going to the Middle East in these like constant rotations. There's a constant presence. But closing down and withdrawing is a different story. And when we go to Red Flag... And these large force exercises, typically it's pushing across the line for the night one of taking the fight to the enemy. We don't ever exercise, okay, we're done and now we're pulling all of our things out of a place. And he called it something and I completely blank what I know it has a term, so you you can educate me on that. But can you talk about um we we didn't reopen bases that I, I'm aware of, right? But can you talk to me? Yeah. Maybe big picture of like, what would that entail? Like if, all right, at that time point, we'd obviously, we'd close Bagram, we'd close Kandahar, we'd close Camp Bastion. And like, to my knowledge, like in Majeris Sharif, like those are your biggest pieces of concrete to go out there and operate on. And obviously their fobs and the C-17 can do some crazy stuff. Can you talk to me like, what would it entail if at that time period, would you have to take what would the footprint kind of look like? What would, what would an op look like? Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters and it's called Spotify for podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started.
0: From my knowledge, since I didn't actually plan what they were planning to do, but just basic understanding of it is you first have to secure a base, whatever base, whatever piece of pavement that you decide to go back to, if we even had a presence there to begin with, you have to secure it. So probably AP called it maybe an expo. Um He might have used a different word, but that is when we pull out of a base and take all our people and leave, you almost look at it as a brand new problem set almost like you're reopening. So you're opening a base. We had to do that in Syria a couple of times and I got to plan that effort. But it is where you're going to a brand new location. All of your assumptions of what exists, the runway environment, the... Different entities that you have there, your friendlies, your foes, like you have to look at all of it like it is a brand new piece of canvas, because you can't bring any of your old assumptions in things have changed, you haven't been there, you don't have presence there. So what supplies you may have had there, you don't know if they exist, the runway environment that may have existed before could be different. Um, There could be different things, there could be potholes on the runway to just small finite things. The perimeter might be taken down. So you have to look at everything from a brand new point of view and a fresh lens or else it could bite you later. The assumption that you make about it could be that limb fact that lets that entire operation down. We work extensively with the Army when reopening fields like that. So it is a joint planning effort between the two entities. That's why this planning effort was done on an army installation instead of on an air force installation and you go down there and no kidding work hand in hand with those officers and say okay this is what we're looking at what do you need for your ground scheme maneuver how can we bring in the different chalks so the different airplanes in what order do you, you need them in um there is a lot that goes into it but very basically fresh set of lens so like it is a brand new airfield that you've never been to You need to look at what's available and can you even land there? And then what teams you need to to bring with you. So the Army and then any Air Force teams you need to establish operations there. And then how robust is it going to be as well? Is it just a quick into the field and then out covertly? Or is it, hey, we're going to establish an actual base here and build it up again? So that really depends on how many aircraft you bring and what type. You could need smaller aircraft for just a quick op or You're going to need a lot of heavier aircraft if you're bringing in multiple trains of supplies and everything like that. So it is robust to say the least, um, but it is an awesome opportunity too.
1: Yeah. It's kind of wild. I imagine some Rangers are probably involved uh, with that process, but it is something just like the basics, like in my mind, I'm like, I, I did ask AP this for the the last mission, but you know, like, what if, you know, an engine has an oil problem you can't take off like how are you getting parts and pieces in there are you are you leaving a plane like all those things just with like the aircraft let alone yeah like the runway now we don't know I've had a buddy who had an emergency landing in the air show world who he put it down on a grass strip that was still in the database well it turns out the airfield had been closed and no one updated the database and there was a roof from a house that had gotten blown on there from a hurricane so and otherwise, like safe emergency landing, and then you find a roof uh, down the way. So not where you want to be in life, and those things uh, definitely can happen. <laughs> can you talk to me? So you, you're at a wedding. This thing is kind of kicking off. You get back home, and then you launch out on a Bravo uh, launch. What, where were you going? Like, or did you know, like, hey, we're flying to Afghanistan or somewhere in the Middle East and just kind of waiting to find out? Like, what did that look like in that planning process and that actual mission?
0: So I knew that we were flying to Afghanistan and by the time we launched the airfield had just been overran. So we were aware of what was going on. There is some televised, I would say televised Intel almost is the best way to put it. And then there was the actual Intel that we were receiving from ground forces of this is what is going on at the field. Uh, We knew that we were going out there, but we didn't know exactly what day. So as a crew force, we sent a bunch of crews out on one, C-17 from Cord at least, and then multiple bases did the same thing. They deployed them forward, but those crews didn't necessarily have iron, have jets to follow with them. So they were pre-staged in front of us. So as the jets moved through the system, the crews could stop, take crew rest while the jets kept going forward to create almost a train of going downrange and then coming back with humans, individuals, cargo, whatever we needed to exfil out of there. So for our jets, we knew that we were going to go to Afghanistan, but our frag was literally just to go to Charleston, spend the night, and then continue on the next day. So all four jets that morning when we launched, we thought we were spending the night at Charleston. The thing that I like to tell some of the students that I talked to at the weapons school about this is that when we launched, they told us just to get out there and get downrange. But as a crew member, you need what is min equipment or min force in your own book of what do I take with me on this mission? Now, every air crew, every pilot, and every crew member has, hey, these are the basic items that I need to go on this mission. It could be night vision goggles. For us, since we are carrying passengers, we usually have to take guns for that. Um, it could be our tactics, so our secret laptops or anything like that we need to prepare us. So when I was talking to my crew members, which was kind of uncanny because we had a mainly female crew, which there's about 20% or female pilots out there but see, crew remembers it was really funny when we got our alert text because we didn't we didn't necessarily know who, who we were flying the mission with we just knew that they were in our squadron and that the scheduler was putting us in crew so it was myself meg who was another instructor pilot and then we had caitlin who was a brand new co-pilot but she had just got back from a deployment so when we looked at our crew qualifications as pilots, it worked out really nicely because I could be the aircraft commander and almost a mission commander just for our little piece, while Meg could help Caitlin and teach her while still taking care of, like, the normal admin of the C-17. So it freed up our brain space a lot. And then we had two loadmasters with us, too, um, one female, one male. And all of the crew together worked beautifully. So we took off, we headed out to Charleston, we landed, and there was three other ships behind us. As I talked about when we landed, I had a friend walk up to me who was a newly graduate of the C-17 weapons school. And he was a class behind me, walked out to the jet and he's like, Hey, how you doing? Um, we're turning your jet right now and we're going to load up the 82nd onto the back of it. I was like, awesome. How you doing? (laughs) Uh, Um, Are you going to do that with the next three jets landing? He's like, yep. I was like, okay. So the first thing that we did is we needed to take care of just mid essentials. We were all planning to spend the night. We didn't have food. Um, So a lot of them, at least not enough food for an ocean crossing. So we ordered a bunch of pizzas. Went, I sent some of my load masters to the shop at a bunch of Gatorade, just have that ready. And we put in base ops. So as the crews landed, they could just grab the food, load it up. And then as they were unloading the army, they were set. So that was like a first thing of just take care of the people to be able to take care of the mission. Yeah, so and then okay. we got a tactics brief after. So the thing that when our crew alerted, and we were set into an actual environment of like, you guys will launch, I told my load masters and the other pilots, I was like, Hey, guys, the things that we need to take off, no kidding, are we need our night vision goggles, we need our tactics. And then we need our guns. Those are the three things in my mind that I was like, we can't leave these at home because I need these to operate. I'm not gonna go out into Afghanistan without those three things. And I was thankful because you had about 30 crews that launched before you just on one single jet, one or two jets to pre-position. So a lot of those things were gone already from the base. Um, We were lucky to get guns. They got in there first, so we were able to get those. Um, we, were, we had our NVGs, our night vision goggles already assigned to us, so thankfully we took those as well. But the tactics were, that was the hard part. And I was fortunate enough that we have the weapons school next to us in McCord, and so I walked over there and asked them, I was like, hey guys. I know that you're home station right now, and not at Nellis. Can I take one of your secret laptops with me to go downrange? And they were awesome. And they're like, absolutely, take it. What do you need loaded on it? So we walked out the door with our min equipment set. And that was a blessing because of later on, we actually were able to fly a mission where other crews couldn't because they didn't have this equipment. So that was like a big thing to us right there.
1: It's I mean, it seems super basic, but it's actually can be. Uh, pain. And I know like going from base to base, I can't even imagine what it'd be like to go like, Hey, you're stationed in McCord and you're at Charleston and you need to go check out guns from the armory. Like I envision that just being just a, an absolute logistic nightmare, but can you talk to me? The, so you landed with a three person crew. Do you have a duty day limit or can you just keep rolling? How does that work?
0: We do have a duty day limit. So we had three pilots, two load masters, which would make us an augmented crew. So we could technically go 24 hours before we actually needed to reset, take crew rest and go again. Um, for this operation, it eventually got waived up to 26 instead of 24 hours. So they extended our duty days. And it was one of these blanket waivers. It you were supposed to call in but by the end of the operation by the end of this 3 weeks everybody's like 26 that's what you're alerted to just get used to it yeah and so it was it was long days we did 3 26 hours in a row for the first 3 days which was pretty brutal a little bit more than that sometimes <laughs> because like from the time that you alert really right. to the time that you're supposed to be in Chocks putting the aircraft to bed that doesn't count for like going through customs, getting your lodging, getting food, actually putting the crew to bed. So that those days were extremely long. And that first one we expected just to be almost like a couple hour, five hour flight over to Charleston. So we were at least fresh. We knew that we had an ocean crossing in front of us. We got the 82nd loaded up and then we took off for Spain Gollum. And that was our first actual crew rest for that night.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking, so five hour flight to Charleston, You sit on the ground, do some admin, and I say some admin lightly, uh, and then launch to spangdalum. So that's probably like, I don't know, a triple seven. That's probably an eight and a half hour block time, uh, somewhere in that range. That's a long day. That's a, that's a really long day. You guys had to be pushing the duty day on that one. I imagine just my simple fighter pilot math.
0: We were just at the end of it. By the time that you factor in us taking, taking our time before, Launching from Accord. So we had that block of time. The Charleston ground time was a little bit more than expected because it was actually us getting prepped, loading up the 82nd. And then you always have cargo issues for some reason. Like, can you actually fit what you're supposed to? We had a wet runway that night. So we had to bump a little bit of the cargo just to be able to make our takeoff weight. Um, I remember looking at our duty day, and they're like, "Hey, you can take all your cargo, and then you can go get gas up in Maine, and then you can continue on." And I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> guys! They weren't even planned to actually like take this leg." I was like, "How about we bump this one thing, and then we continue, and that way we can get it all the way forward deployed to Germany?" Because anytime you land, jets can break, and so that that put us just at a little bit higher elevation of things could go wrong, things could go right. right. How long do you? To wait before getting over there, so it was it was cool being able to take them downrange. That was something that not a lot of people really get to do unless they're in this mission set and going through that base. But grab them, and then usually you go down through like an army base. But at that point, a runway was getting redone down there, so everybody had to get bussed up to be able to upload at Charleston and take off, which was awesome. So we took off, we landed in Spain, Golem. We had our first crew rest expecting the next day to just go to Al Udeed for another night's crew rest and then continue forward the day after. So we expected to be in Afghanistan by day three. And when we woke up in Spain Gollum, they turned to us and said, you're going all the way to today. So oh. at least we were prepared for that. Um, but we got our tactics brief and I was lucky because we got the tactics brief at first downrange at Charl or er, stateside Charleston. So when we got to Spain Gollum, I was able to actually talk with the tactician, who's a good friend of mine now, and say, hey, this is the most up-to-date we have information we have from the mission planning cell, uh, share that with him. So he was able to give the crews more accurate information as they came through, since we had the whole train moving from the United States over towards the Middle East. Uh, we stopped in Al-Udeed. We got gas there. That took a little bit longer than expected too. And at that point, you really got your first flavor of how big is this operation and how many jets are involved? Usually, all you you got about eight C-17s at one time, maybe. At this point, we were up to the 20s easily. Ramp space, all you could see was C-17s, knowing that it was going to uh, get even more packed. So got our gas, got ready, went downrange again, and that was the first day that we actually got into Afghanistan. We did a night landing into... Um, Kabul. It was interesting because the airspace is usually controlled. You go in and you're talking to different controllers in route. And this time it wasn't. You go in and you're doing your radio calls in the blind. You know essentially where the other jets are because you can see them on TCAS. So you can look down and see where their little identifier is and follow them and stay deconflicted that way. But you're doing calls in the blind until you get within... I think it was around 30 miles from the field is where we started picking up the JTAC that was on the ground. Is and that, we all had set.
1: Is, is that due regard? Is that the.
0: Uh... A little bit. It's, it's kind of a, uh, they know we were there. Due regard is a little bit different where we're just going through. And uh, I like calling due regard, almost Ricky Bobby. I like,
1: yeah, just do like to go
0: fast. I want, but not really like it is a set procedure. This wasn't quite the set procedures of due regard. It was a standardized method of entering and exiting the country in which we deconflict with <laughs> ourselves without being controlled.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what it's funny. So for those listening or watching do regard, it popped up in the the F-16 vol three, like towards the end of my time. I'm like, what is this? I will never use this like an F-16 out over the ocean, but yeah, times change. You just never know. You might just be operating due regard, just making things happen. I want to, I want to back up. So One, I think what's really awesome uh, and I'll admit like we have these bro chats with Vader and Bender and we occasionally gripe about various things in the Air Force. The Air Force is imperfect and people, I think in today's time, at least my perception is um, there are things that are definitely less than perfect and not going right. But what stands out to me and when people ask like, hey, what do you think about it? I was like, I have a lot of friends who are really smart that are still in that I have a lot of faith in like standing on the wall that if things go sideways, they make things happen. You describing, you know, obviously being flexible and there's, there is a big overarching, there's TACC helping coordinate and move pieces around. But like when it comes down to it from like the captains, the majors, like Lieutenant colonels, the E sevens, the E sixes, the people who just kind of like come together and like make things happen because they know they need to get it done. Like no one's going to, walk your gun out to the plane, but you guys are making it happen saying, Hey, like, let's not take as much cargo because we buy this extra risk of having to stop and potentially break and getting things down range. That's what I love about it. It's like when it comes down to it, they're really smart people such as yourself who are still out there doing it that will make things happen. And that part of it, uh, while there's things that are imperfect about the military, the air force, etc., like working with Uh, smart people who want to win and get the mission done. That's the best part of it. So there, that's my like one happy plug uh, for the Air Force because you can't beat that anywhere else. There's a lot of stuff that is not great. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who are listening who are supposed to be PCSing and moving places or getting a bonus this year. And if you're paying attention to the news, the Air Force is having some funding issues and creating some stir there. But when it comes down to it, you'll never find, I think, a better group of people to work with for the most part. There's all there's always that one, but um, I digress. I want to talk. So you're you're at Spangdalem, and yeah, you think, hey, you, you guys are thinking you're going to Al Udeed staging, and then going to kind of f- work your way into this this flow. But it turns out, hey, no, you're going to actually go operate downrange. Can you talk to me? And by downrange, you're actually going to fly into country. So uh, I'm thinking, and I don't know anything about it. I've I've flown that in a different plane now, the 777, right? That's a long flight to get over there. So, one, I'm thinking, long day, you're going into unknown environment, you're going to be loading up a bunch of people. What is it? And then, again, I'm like, fuel. Like, do you have enough fuel to – do you have to get fuel on the ground? You're not getting fuel on the ground at Kabul anymore, right? That's out, so you're going to have to air refuel most likely. So, can you talk to me about that? Um, yeah, I guess – and then, also – two-part question should have led with that this time period i mentioned ap when i saw those c-17s coming out of afghanistan i think like probably a lot of people in the air force a lot of pilots they're overloaded with people people are falling out of the plane uh my the cynicism in me was like those guys are going to get q3 meaning they're going to have they're going to fail they're going to commander directed that's failing a check ride like they're going to lose their qualification and have to go through retraining because, you know, they didn't take off doing, you know, a weight and balance with 800 people. They just loaded up. AP mentioned, he's like, there was uh, a feeling, too. There was an unknown at that time. And I think there were rumors circled that the, the crew got Q3. Was that something that was even in your mind? Did you know about it? Was it a done deal? Was that a thought? So can you talk to me about the logistics and the operations of getting, you know, from Spangdalen into Afghanistan? And then, two, was, w- were any of you worried about, Potentially risking your wings going in there.
0: Logistics, fuel. So we knew we weren't going to get fuel at Kabul. It was just too precious of a resource there. And we in the C 17 didn't need it because of our mission planning that we could easily go three and a half hours from Al Udeed out into Kabul and then come back and either land at Ali Asaleem, which is a little bit north of Al Udeed, or Al Udeed itself. So there were tankers in the area in case we did need fuel. A lot of it was unknown. So you didn't know how many people you were going to be uploading. You didn't know what the environment really looked like there besides probably a day-old intel. That's, that's about how la- the latency of the intel was about a day to maybe 12 hours. So taking off from Spain Gollum, fueled up, it was about six to seven hours into Al-Udeed. That was, speaking about fuel, it takes a while to get fuel as it is. Now you add extra jets onto the ground, the logistics piece of it. A normal hour and a half fuel stop turned into about four to five hour fuel stops at LUD at that point. It bottlenecked for sure. So that was our one issue of, okay, we're on the ground. We're waiting here. We're finally getting fuel. We're taking off. It's nighttime. We're going into Afghanistan. We know that we need to make sure that our weight and balance is good. One, to upload we expected normal C-17, probably average fuller load, two to 300, but then we were getting waivers up to 400, 450. It kind of changed per day. So as a crew, you just had to be smart about how many people you took. I asked my load masters as they were loading up, I was like, all right, tell me about how many females there are, how many males there are, and then how many children there are. And that kind of gave me a rough, rough estimate. And then I asked, what do they look like? Are, are they well fed? Are they malnutrition? Like, give me an estimate of what you think their weight is. Because a lot of our weight numbers are done for jumpers. So when a jumper comes on board, they're carrying their pack with them. Or it might be just them doing a slick jump. So we kind of range our numbers based off of that. And then could I buy down a little bit more of my actual total numbers and let more people on by saying, okay, these people don't look like they're 150 pounds. Uh, I have a majority of children with their families on board. So I'm going to say each child, two children equal one adult at this point. So you're trying to be smart with your numbers to make sure your fuel calculations work, to be able to take off. And that is a constant of what you're doing as an aircraft commander or even a pilot on the jet right now, working with your crews, working with the maintenance, making sure the jet's good to go while it's getting uploaded on the ground. So that's like every day that we went in there, that was the thing that we were thinking about. All right, can we take off? Let's run the numbers. Can we add more people? We know what we're essentially given as our requirement, but can we put a little bit more in and buy a little bit Almost like balance the risk, not even buy risk, but balance the risk of getting these people out while still allowing my jet to fly in a normal configuration and state to do this safely. And it's the people, as you said, it's the people on the ground that's enabling the aircraft to go. It's the pilots, the loadmasters, the crew members working together. It's the Blue Force overhead keeping us safe. Like it's everybody working together in almost a concert to be able to make this operation work with the information we know and the tools we're given. So fuel was an issue, but not as big of an issue for our aircraft in general, just because we had the ability to keep our engines running on the ground. And we had a rather large fuel load that we planned for just had to balance it with how many people we were able to take. Now, the second question that you ask, (laughs) let's go into that one again. Remind me, just refresh me on what one do you want me to answer?
1: Well, so the Q3, so my perception of the air mobility world, right? Because I was a FAPE. So I had a lot of C-17 buddies when I was going through. And then subsequently, you know, fast forward when I'm flying F-16s, I would run into former students, et cetera, or I just have friends. So uh, I'll preface this little story for the the listeners. When I showed up to Shaw, we had a guy in another squadron. There's a small little bombing range. It's like kind of out in the swamp. It's R6002. It's like seven miles off the end of the runway at Shaw. You can drop inert heavyweights. So you can drop up to 500 pound concrete bombs. This one individual, he ended up, you know, things are going fast. Like making mistakes is part of aviation. He ended up slinging two 500 pound BDU 50s uh, about like seven miles. And it's just because he held the pickle button down and this diving attack pulled away and then in the climb out, released the pickle button. Well, then the bombs come off the jet and they, they go far away. So he didn't get Q3. He got a great call sign out of it. Um, I think he got some like re... He had to redo that ride. Um, But, you know, like that... Now, obviously, you know, it wasn't like slinging into a neighborhood. That'd been a different story that made national news. But the flip side of that, right... Is he, he learned everyone in the squadron learned from that. Um, that's kind of the, at least the culture that I, I was around that if you made mistakes that could have been metal and honestly could have killed people, like that's not an uncommon thing to happen. You might wear blues on Friday and you might be doing du- a desk duty for a week as like punishment. And then on Friday, you're going to stand in front of the squadron and you're going to tell everyone what you did. So everyone can learn from mistakes now. Might be fair, might be an unfair assessment. Is my friends from the air mobility world that, uh, I mean, I remember I actually he was a C 17 pilot flying T 6s, he popped multiple tires with students like right in the beginning of his T 6 time. And it turns out he was, I think, there's probably some nerves, exp- obviously, there's experience, and his the t- second tire he popped he was sweating bullets because he thought the commanders and come in there q3m he's gonna have to go through retraining and i'm like what like that's just like a normal thing like students are popping tires all day long but in the c17 world he told me it's like you pop a tire maybe you're doing a heavyweight assault landing and you're on the brakes too much and a fuse plug goes like you can get q3 for that uh buddies in the c130 world that uh, this is the crazy thing flying around in Africa. You know, they had, they were doing these heavyweight, he'd never done a heavyweight assault landing in real life, only in the sim. Can't do it in training. The first one he's doing is in the night in Africa on these short fields that are marked by IR lights. And he's talking about that, talking about like flap over speed, doing these like you're like five knots above stall, five knots below overspeeding the flaps. And I'm probably butchering that. But then an SD card is going to tell on you. And if you overspeed the flaps by one knot, like the whole, whole crew gets Q3. So that's a long diatribe, but that at least paints my picture. And that's why I asked AP when I saw that footage, my first thing was like, wow, uh, that's amazing. And those, those crew, like that's heroic. And that's what you get paid to do is like, make those tough decisions. And I'm like, I really hope the air force doesn't Q3 them. And fast forward to be fair, like the air force didn't, they all got distinguished flying crosses to my knowledge, but there was a long period that uh that was like up in the air. So I don't know, was that was being Q3'd did did you know what the status of that crew was? Because there was rumors circulating that they had been Q3'd, and it's probably from not people like me, I wouldn't share that, but I was like, i believe that hundred percent if someone shared that. This episode is brought to you by undeniably dairy. Dairy farmers are more than farmers, they're climate caretakers. They see water as a precious resource. Most farmers recycle water up to four times, from chilling the milk to irrigating the crops. And some even use technology to turn manure into renewable energy. To learn more about what dairy farmers are doing to make their farms more sustainable, visit usdairy.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Some things are just better together, like party playlists and Friday nights. Campfires and ghost stories, peanut butter and chocolate. And Reese's cups are the perfect combination of creamy peanut butter and delicious milk chocolate. So, when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's peanut butter cups. Buy Reese's today wherever candy is sold.
0: So, I understand exactly where you're coming from because I was a fape as well. So, doing the first assignment instructor pilot, awesome time. And you learned. You learned from everybody's mistakes. You learned from your own, you learned from your buddies. And you did talk about it. So I came from that community as well. And then going through weapons school, you mess up a lot in weapons school. Like that is the point of learning from each other and learning where, where the bounds are and what you can do and what you can't do. So having those two things in the back of my mind, I was never actually worried about the Q3 because I knew the ask that they were asking us to do like, Hey, we are asking you to no kidding real world, go out and do the mission, which this jet is designed to do. And we are giving you an environment that we don't quite know or understand. So there is going to be some inherent risk to it. You just have to make your smart decisions, be able to back it up as an aircraft commander and say, this is why I did it. And so for me, I wasn't as worried about that because I knew the rules. I knew which ones that they were going to allow us to move a little bit further on, duty days, things like that. And then I knew kind of where those those bounds were. But I heard the same rumor going down range of these crews were going to get Q3. And that was one thing that I didn't think it would affect our crew. But I knew that it would affect the crew force if they did do that, because you're asking us to do near impossible things at this point, that the aircrew members, the ground support, everybody's just literally being an athlete. And we're trying to do it in the safest way possible. So if you actually Q3 this crew that was given really just dealt a very tough hand and had to make the best decisions they could at that time. Like, what are you telling the crew force during this operation? Um, I had a really great wing commander that reached out to a couple of us while we were downrange. And he was just checking in, asking if we're good, like trying to get any intel back that he could on his side to be able to support the crews going out or the ground personnel or whoever is going out. And then also to filter information up to his leadership to say, hey, this is kind of the pulse that we have on the crew force out there. And I asked him about that. I was like, hey, I hear it was a McCord tail, but not a McCord crew. That was in a lot of the pictures for it. So I was like, I heard that this crew is going to get Q3. What is going on? And he's like, absolutely not. This is not a thing. Like, there, there will have to be an investigation because with any time a life is lost, like, you have to do an investigation. So it's pure Air Force business at that point. But he's like, this crew will not get Q3'd. Like, near impossible conditions were there. And I had even buddies from the weapons school. Flash McVeigh reached out. I remember his text. And he's like, hey, Voodoo, how you doing? Like, uh, I heard crews were going to get crew. Q3 for this. Like, we are ready to stage a walkout at Nellis right now. For <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, um, I was like, hey, man, we're good. Crews are not going to get Q3. Um, investigations will happen, but we're still all operating. And it's hard to because they look at the Q3 and they look at that portion. But think of the mental toll that had on that yeah. crew the Crew wasn't expecting like they weren't taking off expecting to take someone's life. It's a little bit different in the heavy mentality, like, yes, you know that we're in the military, that could happen. Like, it is a part of what I do that can take an enemy's life. But taking somebody that you're actually out there to save, that's, that's harder. And it's not their actions. It's just what happened in that situation. And so that definitely is something that had repercussions for years to come. Like I talked to the crews in this past year, and they're still dealing with it in their own way. So I'm thankful that they weren't Q3 and I'm thankful that they were recognized for the heroic actions that they had to take that day. And I'm thankful like Big Mother Air Force understood the risk that we were taking as air crew and going out there and actually had our back for this. We all learned from each other during that time, just like we did as Bates. Like we had to talk about what was going on as we were going in country. We were talking on our interplane frequencies and passing up-to-date information on runway environment, weather, uh, what the uploading situation was. So it was everybody just trying to make the situation work out in the best possible way we could for each other. Yeah,
1: that's so what you get paid to do. And so I'm glad it worked out. That would have been soul-crushing to say the least. And like talk about the weapon school, you know, that would have... Yeah, been a tipping point. It didn't happen, so it's great. AP, he does mention the, you know, obviously there's an investigation with OSI because there's deaths involved. That drug out for a year, according to AP, which is insanity to me. Uh, You know, so sometimes the Air Force can figure it out, other times they can't. But that one, I think, not being an OSI agent, I probably could have solved that one in about six hours. Uh, But, you know, it is what it is. I want to talk about now. Kind of the operations that are going on so the airfield obviously was overrun the 82nd airborne shows up the plus up happens and now it's i guess more or less to use it uh, definitely loosely like it's organized chaos just starting the evacuation processes of many people can you talk to me what those days and weeks were kind of like and what it was like there on the airfield
0: absolutely the first time that we landed on the airfield it was night as i said uh, we were going into the environment and you didn't really, you knew kind of where the runway was because we had landed there before years previous. But when we were landing there, we're talking to the JTAC and all you could see was a blue strip of lights. And Meg and I were at the controls and I looked over at Meg and I was like, do you have the runway in sight? Cause I had her flying. I was doing the radios at this point and just making sure that I could actually see the runway. She's like, I don't. So I talked to the JTAC and I was like, Hey, we see the blue strip of lights. Where is the runway in relation to that? They said, the runway's on the left. The blue strip is the taxiway. I was like, copy. <laughs> and in the C-17, we have almost benchmarks that we need to be stabilized at a certain point. We need to have the runway inside at a certain point. For doing the type of landing we were doing, uh, we needed to make sure that everything was good to go by 300 feet for us. So we were approaching the 300-foot limit in my mind it was, hey, I have Meg on her night vision goggles. I am as well, but I'm also going between just white light looking out and night vision to see if I can pick up any cues on differentials of identifying the runway, and making sure it's good. We have it based off of what we call the magic in the jet. So everything is displayed of where it should be, but you still need to actually see the runway in order to land. Uh, right around the 300 foot part is where the runway came into view. And so we landed, thankfully, gone the brakes, taxied off, offloaded the 82nd. But it was really a surreal feeling. We kind of looked at each other, sigh of relief at the end. We're like, okay, because out of that 300 feet, if we didn't see it, we're going to go around. There's mountains in that environment. So you just expose yourself to even more of a problem set at that point of, okay, you got to avoid the terrain. You got to get back in. You have to get sequenced in for a landing again. And you have to do that all over again. But the runway was lit just by these like almost glow sticks and milk jugs at that point, just the bare minimum to try to get this field up and running and but still be in a covert environment. Um, you knew that there was some small arms fire in the area. So that was something that you're well aware of. But you have different points in which you can maneuver the aircraft to like avoid that. And then at some point, you're just going to be like, this is this is when we're landing. So that's something that you're keeping in the back of your mind. That's another reason that I had Meg flying and I was looking out just to say, okay, what was the threat in the area? So I would be able to call it to her to react. Uh, it's a crew effort the entire time. You're also letting the people on the ground know what you're seeing. You're letting the people behind you know what you're seeing. But it was cooled also because when you landed, you taxied off and you started hearing very familiar voices on the radio, talking to the ground crews, talking to the JTAC. Like One of my buddies that I went through weapons school was literally two jets behind me. I had a friend that graduated in front of me in the weapons school. That no kidding, like, was across the runway and shot me a text later on. I was like, nice landing, and <laughs> had somebody overhead doing uh, ISR capabilities that got me on a different frequency. And he's like, hey, come up on this frequency, and no kidding, talk to me. He's like, hey, how you doing? And came over. <laughs> so it was in a very tense Surreal. environment but you had your friends there and the people that you trusted and depended on to almost give you that extra, like, all right, we're all in this together and we're going to make this work. And it's not just you doing this mission. It is a team effort. So it was almost a welcomed, just feeling being on the ground, knowing that you had, everybody had each other's back at that point. Um, you were there with friends and you're going to keep going, even though it was a, a, a moderate risk environment at that point. Is that what they classified it as? So
1: yeah, I- I mean, that's the thing too is, I mean, how many years like going into Afghanistan, I, I was, it's probably not the right way of looking at it, but you get kind of comfortable operating in, in those environments where like, yeah, it's pretty safe. But the coin I think had flipped at that point because I mean, if you're ISIS or the Taliban or, you know, whoever bad guy, if you shot down a C-17 or like shoulder fire weapon and you were able to get your hands on it and like do that, like that would have been the primo time to do it, you know, like that would have just really thrown a wrench into to everything that was going on. Do you land with the lights out or do you, all we understand? have,
0: uh, we have IR. So infrared lights for the C-17 when we're on night vision goggles, there are some, some crews that are trained to no kidding, block out their jets and land that way. So that is a way that the C-17 can land. The That's majority crazy. of the crews were landing with their infrared lights on so they could see it. But just the naked human eye couldn't necessarily see the jet. They could hear it eventually once it landed. Right. But they couldn't see it. And then daytime operations, you can just have your normal lights on, cause hey, they can they can see you at that
1: point. Yeah. Big old big old plane flying around. Man, that's wild. Was it pretty organized as far as the flow of people onto the aircraft by the time you guys were you know operating those last couple weeks of August?
0: The last couple weeks, yes. The first time we landed there. No, um, it was just after the overrun and they had to process all of the passengers through c- like essentially almost a customs to make sure that they were vetted, counted, um, made sure that they didn't have any weapons on them and then get them on a PAX manifest to load up into jets. So when we landed there that first night, we actually didn't take passengers, which was wild to think about because we were expecting that. And that is what our mission was. And we were configured for it. And so to be told that we were taking cargo was really a morale deflator, for sure. You you felt like you just weren't a part of the mission at that scent. And uh, that was hard for our crew. That was really hard because you expected one thing. And then you're like, why am I even here to take GSA cargo out? Like, are you kidding me? We fought back a little bit. But Knowing what I know now, it's they could not process the passengers fast enough to be able to manifest them onto the jets. And we just had so many jets starting to come in at that point that they would get the passengers on as soon as they were ready. But if they weren't ready, they were trying to exfil because we had a ton of cargo there, too. It was an operating base. So they were like, try to take what we can out. And then passengers are first priority. But if they're not ready send the crews out and have them come back because we can't stay there forever, either. We were burning fuel on the ground with our engines running. So that first one was hard. Thankfully, we got to go back at least three more times for passenger runs out of there. And so one of our I think it was the second time that we were in country, that was a lot more streamlined, third time and fourth time. By then, it was more streamlined in Kabul than it was at LUD offloading the passengers well-oiled machine. There were still some hiccups. You're still waiting on the ground a little bit, but as far as like getting the passengers manifested on, the crews did a lot of it. So passengers would line up behind the jets. We would lower the ramps when we were ready. We would unload the passengers, usually patting them down. So we we were lucky because we had female and male crew members. So we would send one female, one male down there. They would do a pat down just to make sure that things that we didn't want on the jet weren't coming on the jet and they would bring them up. They would have them stand and go all the way forward. We also had Ravens with us. So we had armed personnel that were helping guard the plane. They were also helping bring the passengers on. We had one of them stationed just at the bottom of the crew entry door stairs. So there's crew entry door and then there's the stairs up to the cockpit. Usually they were standing right in between that. So if anybody actually wanted to come up into the cockpit, they would have to go through the Raven. brought everybody on. As soon as they were on and standing, we'd have them sit down. And you think about it too, Rain, there's a huge language barrier here. So if you were lucky to have somebody that spoke English in the passengers, that was awesome. And we would usually find out, bring them to the front and let them talk through the loadmaster mic. That way they could tell everybody to come forward, stand up, sit down, like kind of what the rules and regulations are for the aircraft. But if you didn't, like it was rough. You have a huge cultural barrier. You have a language barrier. Oh, by the way, they're stressed. They're leaving their home country, not knowing where they're going. Like, it is a very emotional time for them, for the crew. So it was a lot of humanistic skills that had to be used and just a humanistic point of view of these are people. We're people. We're just trying to make this work.
1: That's a lot to handle. I was just thinking, too, you know, it's like you don't know who's – you know, they, who's coming onto your plane. They obviously went through some kind of vetting process, but when you're talking tens of thousands of people, like there's bound to be one that slips through the crack. So I would imagine, at least for me, that would be riding the back of my nugget that, all right, there's someone who would just love to cook off a grenade, clack off a vest. You know, if they somehow got that through, I'd imagine that'd be pretty challenging to do, but crazier things have happened. Um, the language barrier that's, you know, these are the, like the little details that you don't really think about, but you're loading all these people into the plane. Most of which, or not most of which, I don't know if that's fair to say, but there's probably a vast majority that are not used to, they probably have never been on a plane, period. Um, I was thinking we had the first Afghani in our pilot training class since like the 1950s, and he would literally call home to the one phone or payphone in the village. Someone would run down the street. It would take like 15, 20 minutes, get his wife, bring her back to the centralized phone, and then he would talk to her. Uh, I've had I had other students from other countries that literally had never ridden a bicycle, you know, and then you put them in this jet. So those are the things that you take for granted, I think, being an American or growing up in the Western world for the most part. like So you got that. How many bathrooms are on the C seventeen? That's a fun fact. <laughs> I, didn't want to, I didn't want-
0: Bathroom, and then there's urinals in the back. We we pretty much stayed off the urinals because at that point they were going to overflow. We had ah. that one bathroom. Um, Western culture also has we go to the bathroom different than their culture does. So we literally had to put signs on the bath, like in the bathroom on the toilet, saying "Do not stand on the toilet." Uh, it's just basic things like that that you don't think of until you're in that situation yeah. and you're experiencing it. Our bathroom on one of our our second sortie was definitely our longest like crew duty day throughout Afghanistan, period. But on that sortie, we legit bathroom was full, like overflowing, had to shut it down. <laughs> and you have 500 plus people in the back of your jet, including your crew members yeah. that like, hey, we got to use the bathroom. So we came back and landed at al And you can't just let these passengers off. They need to be loaded on a bus with security forces because they're not military personnel. And that bus and the security forces take time to get out there because they're working the best they can. But you have jets landing every like 10 minutes or 20 minutes with 500 plus people that then have to be put through customs and into the place that they're staying, it takes a couple hours, to say the least, to get those security personnel out there to get your jet. So we're sitting on the ground for about four, six, 10 hours, 12 for some crew. Your bathrooms are overflowing. We had to call Moose Ops, which is essentially the deployed C-17 unit out there, and say, hey, we're having issues out here. This is our situation. We've already called the ground crew to try to like clean our bathroom. We shut down two engines, but they're not showing up for it. So we need some help. They know kitty brought out buckets of kitty litter. And we just cordoned off the galley, put kind of like a sheet up there and put the buckets of kitty litter in the galley. And that was our makeshift bathroom. And that's what it had to be at that point. Wow.
1: That's brutal. Yeah. It's things like that. You just, uh, Uh, you don't really think about it It doesn't really make the forefront but human beings who have human needs and then you start multiplying it and again i I reference back to ap's episode because i joked i went to LUD to go to the chaotic for an lno tour so the liaison tour for three weeks but i remember customs there being kind of a pain to deal with just for a crew and then hearing stories of like the tanker crews and c-17 crews who are going in and out like it could take 45 minutes it could take 10 minutes it could take an hour i think it was more of more of the latter each and every time. It's just not a fast process. And then, yeah, now you're just dealing with this crisis. Not where you want to be in life. Spicy. It was spicy. I did see a photo of you holding a young baby. Can you talk to me? This broad question, like, what were your, like, overall thoughts? Did perspective change? Was there anything that was, like, super good, bad, impactful, just in general, like, doing that, anything that stands out?
0: Absolutely. Um, I'll do a teaser for a story that I will tell, whether it be on this platform or later on with you on a separate one will be the longest day and essentially our longest day in the C-17 as a, a crew force for our mission during Afghanistan. And it was 36 hours. But during that day, we were in Afghanistan uploading and we had uploaded around four fifty five hundred at this point. I'm downstairs just monitoring the upload, and I had some ground personnel come up to me and ask me to sign a PAX manifest, so a passenger manifest. And usually the loadmasters do that. And I, I found it kind of odd that they were asking me, I was like, hey, like, what's the difference between this and what we usually do? They said, oh, this is a passenger manifest for 24 orphans. Um, we need you as the aircraft commander. You are now signing as their legal guardian. So that was, that was gut punch at that point. Wow. I don't, yeah. and all of a sudden I have 24 immediately.
1: Um, <laughs> Escalated quickly.
0: <laughs> that, that very much did. Um, it was an honor. It, it was absolutely a no brainer. They're like, Hey, will you take them? Absolutely. They ranged from ages of small children all the way up to teenagers. And they brought them on board and they were kind of taking care of each other at that point. The teenagers were holding the small children. And we put them right up front just to keep keep an eye on them, monitor them. But it also was a little bit heart-wrenching, too, because their situation is like some of them were left in country and now their parents fled without them. Some of them were pushed forward by their parents. And so they're going forward without their, their family. Some of them just didn't have a family. Uh, so it was just it was really a surreal moment. It was beautiful in its own way, but at the same point, heart-wrenching. And we were, the photo that you're talking about is we were on the ground in Al-Udeed waiting to offload the entire jet. We still had the orphans on board. Um, There was a small child, three-month-old child had to be. And the passenger compartment got around 98 degrees. It's 115 to 120 outside, middle of the day. And we're just trying to keep the passenger compartment, the cargo compartment, cool at this point. And we have vents from the two upper areas of it. So I, I, holding this child... And I see like these adults holding it first and they're kind of stressed because this child is overheating. So they hand me, I'm holding this child and I go up near the vent and I'm just holding this child next to the vent to try to get the cool air onto them. Like, that's the only thing I'm doing. I'm just trying to keep them cool. Cause at that point, that's all you can do humans yeah. helping humans. So one of the most surreal moments, and I was lucky, one of our um, medical team that were on board caught that photo of me just sitting there with a child. Like we're in a two-piece flight suit, the blouse is off. I'm just a human holding a human, trying to make the best of the situation. But real heart-wrenching at that point.
1: Jeez, yeah, it's I mean, absolutely, yeah, horrific. All this, all this stuff. But it comes down to it: you just do do your part and uh, make it a little better. So I have to share that photo before we wrap up. So I think um, I, one, I, I will ask you if you'll hang around, and do a "There I Was" story. It sounds like maybe maybe you'll share that. That's for the Patreon supporters. But then two, I'll ask you, you know, if you found 15, 16 year old you're walking down the street, is there any advice you would give little voodoo to change? But Before we do that, so I'll let you think about it, because sometimes that one throws people for a curveball. You might already have it teed up. But um, as we kind of wrap up here, the last your last sortie out of Afghanistan, was there anything not different, but like were there any emotions? Was there anything uh, unique about it cuz you like obviously everyone knew the line in the sand and where it was um any thoughts going through your mind or was it just a another day
0: last sortie out was actually the day of the closure of Kabul so August 30th and I took a morning flight out so I wasn't in the final 5 which AP will talk about I'm sure But my crew was one that we went in, we were empty in the jet, went downrange, and we knew that it was going to be the last day. Like that was something that the crews knew that, hey, this is it. Even though we said we're closing tomorrow, this is going to be today and that this would be our last run. So everything at that point was extremely streamlined going into Afghanistan on the ground. You just knew your procedures at that point. It was the same, but you knew what was happening. You expected the things that were going on, weather always played an issue. If there was a thunderstorm near, cause it was summertime, um, we landed, it was daytime at that. And we uploaded some guys that worked for three letter agencies, some snake eaters, just guys that had been there from the start. And they had seen some things wearing all plain civilian clothing. A lot of them had beards and we got them onto the jet and they knew it was the closure too. like, they knew it was happening. Uh, A little bit mixed feelings. They knew that they did what they could, but they also knew that there was always more to do down there. Like, always more. Um, Took off, went back over, offloaded them. And each time that we offloaded passengers in LUD, the wait time got shorter and shorter. So the longest that we ever had to wait was around six hours. Um, By this point, we were waiting two hours before we could offload. And especially if they were American citizens, we could just let them off, essentially essentially to the crew bus, we didn't have to have um, we didn't have to have any security forces with us at that point because they were vetted, they knew they were one of us. So that had a mixed feeling, but we also knew that everything was going to stop movement after we got the final five back that night. So all of the jets were essentially going to have twenty-four to forty-eight hour down period before they flowed back into stateside. And none of us knew the stateside flow plan. At that point, we just knew that, hey, okay, we're going to be done here, but we don't know how long we're going to stay in LUD, Germany, any of the staging bases that are going to be out there. And I had, our group commander had gone downrange at that point and had jumped onto my jet that day. And so I'm talking to him and I was like, hey, sir, when do you have to be home? And he's like, I had to be home on Thursday. And I think it was a Monday. It was something about like a three to four day time turn period. And I'm, I'm knowing how the jets flow and I am looking at the different movements of what is projected. And I turned to him once we landed back in LUD and I was like, sir, if you, if you actually need to be home this day, like we need to get you out of country now, like you need to take that jet over there. That's going back to McCord. And this poor man hadn't slept for the last two days because he just kept jumping on with different crews and not actually going to bed. Um, to get crew rest. So he was just following along. So he looked at me, we talked about it recently. He's like, I was gonna murder you that day. I so <laughs> and I was like, I know, I'm so sorry. But my crew at that point had had enough too. we can always do more. But I had one of my load masters had had a family death. The other one was incredibly sick. And I had to augment them with some of the deployed crew members that were already out in you deed. And thank Thank goodness he didn't have COVID, but it was to the point of... And then our pilots, we were all fatigued and mentally just exhausted. We had been out there the entire time. And I knew that it was time for like my crew to go back. And I saw that as an opportunity. So we got released from the Al-Udeed stage. We got released from the Ramstein Germany stage as well, because you needed that. And then we called the TACC because they also had a partner too. We had a lot of parents at that point yeah, who's trying jobs. to control us. exactly, And um to my ops officer and was like, hey, we're released from both stages. Um, I think that TACC is not tracking us at this point. Maybe they are, can you help out? And so he called them, he called me back and he's like, jump on the plane, get your crew on there. So I grabbed my crew and I literally cross-loaded them from the jet that we landed into the other jet. Because every day that we flew, since we weren't a deployed crew, we had to take all of our bags with us. We had to out-process through customs and then we had to fly. Drag all of our bags back because we didn't know if we were going back to Al when we came back every night. Seems so that. Jeez. It was a lot. It, it sucked really bad. But at the same point, it was just yeah. part of it. So we got onto another jet and three out of the four crews that had launched on that Bravo launch were actually on that jet going back. One of them was operating. So it was really cool being able to go with them. But we had so many, so many emotions going through it. Because we did what we came to do. Um, some crews were on the ground during the Abbey Gate incident. So they were dealing with that. We had crews that just had seen some things that, whether it be just in the back of their jet or dealing with people, that it was hard for them to truly process. And still probably to this day is hard for them to process. Um, talking to other crew members just from other jets and how we were there for each other. But at the same point, like this was this is emotionally more than you expect from a normal C-17 mission. Even in the middle of those three weeks where you're just doing passenger runs in and out of Afghanistan, like those days were grueling and long and dealing with the passengers and the emotional state of them. It was just a lot for any person at any time. So learning from all of that, I would say that was that was one of the things that I took away. Um, talking to Little Voodoo, 16 18 year old little video, Um, I went to the Air Force Academy. I would tell her definitely continue, do the path that you're doing, but it's gonna be different than what you expect. Like I grew up the daughter of a fighter pilot. Uh, He flew F-16s, I love that jet. It was my first jet that I loved and I will always love it. But it's going to be interesting in the path that like different than you expected. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I am so thankful that I am in the community I am, flying the jet I am because it is who, it is me. It is the jet that was meant for me. And the mission set that was meant for me. So just be open to that, be open. You're going to fape at this point. So (laughs) on it, it's going to be a blessing. Um, essentially the people, I have a boss that says this, the people are the magic. And he's really right when he says it, because just the story that you told at the beginning of the people, it's on the back of the people. It's on the back of the airmen. Um, the Air Force is an organization, we're part of a bureaucracy, we sometimes get it right, we sometimes don't, we're sometimes controlled by Congress or anything like that. Right. But it's the people that always stay the same. And so it's the people need to be first, the people are what's going to make the mission happen, The people are the magic, and they will do extraordinary things. So it's okay for things not to go to plan, just keep, keep crushing. And people are really the magic in this world and the secret to life, I say.
1: Oh, Budo. I appreciate it. We didn't even scratch, I mean, we didn't even scratch the surface with your career, but I was just thinking too, you know, from your, we met at sun and fun cause you were doing C-17 demo. I can't even imagine what it's like cleaning out an airplane after an air show, let alone, um, you know, <laughs> doing what you did. So uh, I'll have to have you come back on. We can talk about weapon school and, and things like that as well, but thank you for taking the time. I think you're gonna hang around with the there I was story. This was fun to be able to catch up. And I mean, it's, It's crazy that it's been two years. So, hearing your side of the story and just a little bit of perspective of what it was like on the ground was uh, impactful. So, thanks for taking the time to share that.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.